Hola, my beautiful humans. This is Jasmine Castillo, and I bring stories and cases from the people of color community, bringing awareness of murdered and missing indigenous women, girls, two spirits, the LGBTQ community, Asian American, Pacific Islander, black indigenous people of color. These are their stories. So welcome to Hands Off, my podcast. July is the month of BIPOC Mental Health Awareness. BIPOC is an acronym for Black Indigenous People of Color. There is a strong link to Black Indigenous People of Color's mental health. Here's why. I like to hit on this. Nearly one in five American adults will have a diagnosable mental health condition at any given year. 46% of Americans will meet the criteria for a diagnosable mental health condition sometime in their life, and only half of those people will develop conditions at the age of 14. Black American community, 16% with mental illness. And to put it into perspective of the population of Black Americans with mental illnesses would be around 7 million. In the Latinx Hispanic American community, 16% will have a mental illness, which is around 10 million. Native American and Alaska Native communities are at 19% with mental illnesses, which is 827,000 in population. If you want additional information on mental health facts, I will have some links in the show notes, as well as a mental health toolkit if you are interested. This is a quote that really caught me off guard. Quote, Libations poured in remembrance, balloons released into the sky, ritual and procession, pomp and circumstance. It's an affair when black people die. When it comes to a lost loved one, specifically in the people of color community, we pour a little extra alcohol and hopefully to ease our grief and sorrow. Balloons symbolizing the rising of their spirits to heaven or to a greater place, no longer in pain or suffering of this cruel world, a ritual that is continuous, and it seems like a constant deja vu, seeing this play out over and over and over again. When a life of a black man woman, child, is snuffed out. When I spoke to Fallon about her brother Andre, it was a story that I've heard too often. It plays out 
like a broken record in social media, in news broadcasts. But this is a story that has never seen the light of day. Because when I looked for him in social media or news articles, I even looked him up on a missing person search. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Like he was erased from the face of the earth, was non-existent. The only things that seemed to cling on or tidbits of memory that Fallon has spoken of, but because of her being so young at the time, those memories are beginning to fade as time goes by. It has been three decades since the murder of her brother. This is the story of Andre Powart. In the beginning of my podcast, I have so much fire, and it's the same fire that I have today in helping the lost voices be amplified on my podcast. And in doing so, I was searching through social media for specific guests to come onto the podcast and talk about their lost loved ones and their stories, hoping to bring some type of closure or justice or bringing them home if they were never found. Fallon tells a story about her brother, and it's something that breaks my heart, because like I said, this is something that we have heard over and over again, but yet, I choose to not be numb by it. I choose to keep my fire ignited, because this is a family, a brother, an uncle, a son, a loved one. I was able to sit down with Fallon to talk more specifically on the story behind Andre and his life and what has come of, if any information, on his untimely death on August 31st, 1991. Labor Day weekend, 1991. I was nine and, you know, family in town, just hanging out, doing good. I had an older sibling who had a job at like a fast food restaurant. The day continued by with no one having heard from him. And obviously my mother is like one of those people who keeps up with everybody. So it was kind of like ominous. We already kind of felt like a heaviness, a cloud over that day. Like there was something just going on. Um, it wasn't until probably that afternoon that they got a call um, to kind of go out. And it was kind of like a, a cloak of secrecy. Like, okay, we got to go make this stop that, you know, we're not telling you what it is, but we're going. So my parents went out and did all these things. Um, didn't know then it was to be identifying a body, of course. Um, but he, from some time from his shift at work to that next day, he was either robbed or apprehended at some point with someone coming into the restaurant. Um, but needless to say, they found him deceased in his car on the other side of town. So we didn't really know any details at all. And it's still a cold case. There's still no arrest, no closure, no anything. It's really just been 30 years of not knowing, um, kind of just looking over your shoulder, but not necessarily knowing who you're looking at. Um, never got any clues, never got like anything. It really was just like, okay, this is Houston, 1991. Black people, crime is going ridiculous this is just another person in that number for me it wasn't there were, weren't any 
services or anything available. And it kind of was like a be quiet situation for me. Like I felt like I had to really just throw myself into like my studies and reading books and just kind of focusing on other things to kind of stay out of the way because I could see all the stress and like having to go to different interviews and go to different places and talk to different lawyers and doing all these different things that my parents were having to do just because, you know, they're closing out affairs and having to deal with all these things. So my first instinct was to just be quiet about it. Like, don't talk about it. Don't say his name. Don't ask too many questions. Just kind of sit back and, and try not to cause any trouble because like this is already brewing. Like, we don't want to start anything else that's going to upset anyone or be as disruptive as finding out that someone has been shot and killed. So I turned into my schoolwork just quiet. I kept it very quiet for many years. Um, It wasn't until probably like my teenage or 20s that I started seeing like ways that that manifested into other things in my life. Like I feel like even relationships, if someone didn't call me or call me back, like I would freak out and it wouldn't even be like, um, oh, I think this person's cheating. No, it would be like, okay, if you don't answer your phone within a certain amount of time and you don't call somebody back, that means you're murdered. You're dead. Just that's my first thought. And that really just caused like a lot of anxiety, a lot of paranoia, a lot of just disruptive relationships just based off of me having manifested that whole idea that not hearing from people means that they're, they've been killed. Um, and that's definitely not a positive way to think about anything because you're constantly worrying, you're constantly being paranoid and looking over your back behind your shoulder like everything so it wasn't until I started realizing like okay some of this is not adding up like you're not doing this because you have a low self-esteem or trust issues you're doing this because something tragic happened to you when you were a little girl and you kind of felt like if I don't hear from somebody then something obviously bad has happened to them um I had to kind of do my own self-evaluation and like my own self-work to know that, hey, you need to kind of confront this. You need to go talk to somebody. You need to go to therapy. You need to work on this. You need to do journaling. You need to do something um, because this event that happened so many years ago has pretty much not necessarily overshadowed, but kind of been like a cloud over you this whole time. And you never really quite came to terms with it. There was no closure, especially when you're like, nine, 10 years old, like you don't even know what closure looks like. So just kind of having to go through that with like a a, a hush or like a, a sense of can't talk about this, can't ask too many questions, don't want to upset anybody, don't want to, you know, make anyone mad or anything like that. It gets heavy. There are so many levels of trauma that a family goes through. There is a thing called intergenerational trauma. And that refers to the trauma that is passed from a trauma survivor to their descendants. It is also referred to as transgenerational or multi-generational trauma. The effects of intergenerational trauma can be seen by many symptoms similar to post-traumatic stress disorder, hypervigilance, anxiety, and mood dysregulation, high anxiety, panic attacks, nightmares, insomnia, as well as issues with self-esteem and self-confidence. Intergenerational trauma occurs when a trauma is passed down between generations. This is something that has affected people of color community 
racial trauma, and other systematic oppressions. There has been many papers researching that our genetic material manifests in our body. The way our genes determine everything from what we look like to what diseases we may be predisposed to have. This is also called epigenetics. When someone has a trauma experience, that DNA responds by activating dormant genes. It helps them to survive a stressful situation, like fight, flight, freeze, or fawn response. Instances of conversation with my guests, mostly mm -hmm. female guests, who were uh, people of color, who have also kind of hinted on their past and what type of struggles they had gone through. And one of them particularly hit me deep. And she was talking specifically about intergenerational trauma and things that had dealt with through her generations, her mother and so forth. Her ancestors had gone through it and she carries on that same type of trauma throughout her life because of what has inflicted upon her ancestors. Mm -hmm. And it just kind of clicked. It just like, this is a calling that I have, it's a dire need. And I started looking up in podcasts to see if there was anything like that out there. Maybe two or three who are extremely focused on one category of, of a community. And I just wanted to have a voice out there for the majority of our community, you know, yeah. the broad spectrum of Asian American, Pacific Islander, um, Native Americans, uh, indigenous people, black people. It's like the Latinas. So it's just mm -hmm. like, this is something we need and yeah. it, we don't have it. So and unfortunately it's kind of a generational thing to keep those types of conversations hush hush or yes. we don't talk about that or oh we don't bring that up and that is in and of itself doing all of us a disservice because it's so much trauma just ingrained almost in our DNA that it's just being reborn and reborn but we aren't taking the time to actually face it or Mm -hmm. confront it just because tradition or family familial ways or oh we don't speak of that or we don't do that so I, I I feel you that's what made me kind of just really jump at the opportunity when I saw you mention it in the group because I'm like no one ever talks about that and me I try to keep my platform very open as far as like being transparent about grief being transparent about just trauma and how these things affect you and how they can kind of become a part of you um, if you don't look them straight in the eye or even if you try to just sweep them under the rug. So I was definitely very excited when I saw this. And I'm like, okay, this is so cool. I'm, I'm with it. I'm glad. I'm glad you reached out to me. I'm like, I have not been getting a lot of people interested in it. And I, and like you said, it's one of the things that we don't, we were conditioned to not talk about outside of the family. Mm -hmm. Who wants to talk about their personal life um, because we have so many connections with other family members that will inflict or literally blow horns on the people who were involved in those. It's a lot about how you present it also, because some people haven't necessarily done the work to be comfortable enough to say, hey, let me raise my hand where I'm kind of like, OK, I'm at this stage of my journey and I'm trying to be like the advocate for people who are more so scared still. True crime has always been a thing for me. And I just noticed there was just not downing on anyone. I'm not criticizing or ridiculing anyone. This is a safe space for mm -hmm. this podcast. One of the reasons why I noticed that it was just a lot of 
lack of social media network broadcasting international news based on people of culture. There was no broadcast across yeah. the you know national news unless they were falling under a particular eye color, hair type yeah. person. And that's that's a problem for me. It just kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Representation in the Latinx world is very uh, European-centric. We're getting more of the blonde, Espanyard look Mm -hmm. versus indigenous or more Afro-Latina. So I I get you. I feel like we have so much stuff to talk about. You've just said that we have in common that doesn't even have to do with like this moment. I know we're like way off topic, but yeah, we'll have to talk offline too. Please redirect me. And if you want to take the floor on um, a little bit more about your story about your lost sibling Mm -hmm. and how they lost their life in regards to the gun violence and how you handled it and how you came out of that kind of your journey. Yeah, so I am a part of that unique club of individuals who had to deal with trauma very early. I was nine years old. I was in the fourth grade when my older sibling was murdered. Um, So that basically changed the trajectory of my life um, as far as how my family interacted with each other, just the things that I had to go through. I had to grow up very fast. I had to really find ways to self-soothe and entertain um, because when something like that happens, it's it's very major. It's, it's catastrophic. It, it pretty much uproots everything that was normal in your life. So when that happened, um, I think my mom had just turned 40 and it's, and it's so crazy to me because I'm like the exact same age now that she was when all this was going on. And, and I don't even think that I would have the capacity to lose a child or have to deal with going to court and figuring all these things out. Just the whole idea of not necessarily being on a true crime story, but a, tr- a true crime being your life. So that happened It's been almost 30 years ago. I was nine, almost 10 years old. And it just exposed me to a lot of different things. Um, It it made me realize that grief doesn't have an age. Um, There's no time limit on when you can feel sad about loss. You can be a child and be dealing with like pretty heavy things and grief and not necessarily knowing who to talk to or how to talk to people about it. Um, It let me know that family dynamics are very fragile. All it takes is for one loose thread to be pulled and that can just expose so many other different things. Having to deal with like family members or parents or other people dealing with grief and everybody showing their feelings and trying to be the strong person or who was able to just kind of allow themselves to, to revel in it. Like that was just a whole entire dynamic that as a 10 year old, nine year old, you don't even anticipate that as something that you would have to go through, but it definitely ages you very quickly. Um, I started watching the news almost like, like obsessively, (laughs) like paying attention to different things that were happening, trying to connect dots. I found myself trying to be a, a junior sleuth, losing myself in like books and just reading all kinds of things that would kind of give me clues and help me figure out like which direction to take as far as like figuring things out. Um, so it it shaped me very heavily as a child, just having to 
experience that 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 trauma that sudden loss of someone um and it, it definitely set up a, a different background i know we were talking kind of before we started about how it can affect you and like manifest in so many different ways as far as your self-esteem or how you interact with males or individuals like your level of trust with people how you're able to navigate just simple situations like going inside of a store like panic anxiety like all of these things can be manifested from that one event um and there's so many just question marks about how to deal with it especially back then like we didn't have all those resources 30 20 years ago and especially in communities of color it's still kind of taboo like something bad happens typically the first thing people are gonna say is the oh well we'll pray about it or oh god knows and this everything happens for a reason but when something traumatic happens to you like okay so if someone were raped or someone was assaulted or something like that, you got to kind of come to grips with like, okay, why would God want this to happen? Like that whole dynamic is there too. So it's just a lot of different things that you come face to face with when something like that happens to you that I think most people aren't prepared for. Thank you for sharing that because that's something that a lot of people don't understand is um, one of the things that I've learned young in life and watching my own aunt wake up at four o'clock in the morning on her knees, praying until like three or four hours, starting her day and constantly just, she got herself involved in church. She got herself involved. So I kind of got into that same thing. I'm not a very, I guess, religious person because of some of the steps that I've noticed in life is that people want to say, oh, I'll pray on that and pray for that for it's to you to heal and to you to do all of this. And, but to have my aunt, who was a beautiful woman who lost her life one moment, she was perfectly fine. And then the next she's dead the next day. And there's a whole story behind that as well. And it's, it was just, and then seeing other people who I thought loved me and find out that they were so in deep with religion and praying and the Bible reading and, and, doing the scriptures and knowing it by heart. And yet with the same breath, they're punching my face and grabbing my neck and hurting me or hurting my children. It's like, mm -hmm. I lost so much faith in people mm -hmm. because who were related to some type of religious organization. Mm -hmm. So when people tell me, oh, just pray for it, pray about it. I have this buildup animosity and anger that's rooted to my past as to, I want to just tell them like where to go with that in a very rude way, because none of that saved my life. None of that got me out of what I, what I was going through. I would. The church trauma is real. The Yeah. It's so real. It's so the, real. the, the grasp that the church has on communities of color, especially when it comes to things like that. Like it's, it's so easy to, rejoice and be happy about the good things but then when it comes to like the bad things of life happening that's when I feel like we're kind of left out there just to kind of fend on our own it's more so like a band-aid versus like a, a remedy so I feel you yeah. <laughs> I feel you hard um and it's like when stuff happens it's like hard like it's your instinct it's always just instinctual just to just be like oh well this happens for a reason but to somebody who's in the midst of 
their trauma or the midst of losing a relative or the midst of witnessing just a horrific crime, that's, I feel like it can sometimes be insensitive. Like, yes, lean on my faith and all these, I believe in God. I know that he's going to do what's best for me and all of these things, but we need to, especially black, brown people really seek out of outside remedies. Um, some of these things we genuinely need help with. Then it's not just the band-aid of a prayer. Sometimes it's the action. It's the speaking about it. It's the conversations. It's the going to the therapy to discuss it. It's the going to a peer group or something like sometimes it's 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 just more needed. Um, and I really wish that like Black and brown indigenous communities would be more open to it versus kind of hush hush in those situations um, in silencing each other um, instead of wanting to really dive in deep um, and discuss the pain and the trauma and what really happened. Like, why did this person do this? Like, XYZ, like, what was the root of it? Like, was this person sick? Was this person ill to be committing this type of crime? Like, why would they do that? Okay, and now we got to deal with the rehabilitation of the victim. Like, now we got to make sure that the person who dealt with it all, who suffered the brunt of whatever mistake or action that was taken, like, it's so much work. It's so much just empty space. Um, and even with me, that just going through stuff like that at a young age, it is kind of what pushed me to want to be like public servant. It is kind of what pushed me to want to be an attorney. It is kind of what gave me that drive to want to be a voice for the voiceless. And even in just like my non-day job activities, um, I'm very big on just finding ways to give people a voice and a platform and just talking it out, um, especially Black and brown communities. I, I'm in Houston. I've grown up with people of color, people who speak Spanish, people who went to high school with me, who have adopted me into their families. So I'm very big on like just the bond between the Black and brown communities, especially when it comes to things like this, because we're so similar um, in how we hide our trauma. We're so similar in how we mask certain conversations and mask certain feelings just based off of the idea of how we're supposed to be presenting ourselves um, or you want to save face for the family. You don't want to bring shame on XYZ or that uncle that does whatever or the T.O. that does whatever and everybody's like don't mess with T.O. whatever like we got to bring attention to those things and like be comfortable and open with it as black and brown people knowing that it's our stuff and we got to deal with it and it's no shame behind it because we're just doing ourselves an injustice. Intergenerational trauma inflicts is the most vulnerable population black Americans in the United States being systematically exploited. With repeated and continued abuse, racism and poverty are all tragic enough to cause genetic changes. This would consist of seeing or being part of a domestic violent, sexual assault, sexual abuse, hate crime, or any other acts that can result trauma. I'm just grateful that I met the right people or had friends who had taken steps to kind of face other things that had happened to them that made it normal or like normalized it for me. Um, because I feel like a lot of times communities of color, we don't necessarily normalize going to therapy or grief counseling or 
seeking help from your counselor at college or even just talking about certain stuff with your friends. So I'm very fortunate for a community um, that kind of normalized it for me. And I do my best to advocate um, the same thing now, just because I know that there's that big apprehension, um, especially with people who look like us, from wanting other people to know that we're struggling with something that has happened. Exactly. And I'm so glad that I have you here as a guest, because even after that, such a dark, dark path in front of you that you didn't even pave. It was just something that became part of your life and you just had to deal with it in in a way that no other child should be even dealing with at such a young age. I don't think anybody should be dealing with this at all. Mm -hmm. And having that your sibling is still a cold case that just, it just beyond me. And then saying that you are just, oh, it's just a statistic because we being of people of color community is just another number. Mm -hmm. Someone else in the ground that we don't have to worry about. And that's just kind of the mentality that just aggravates me. And every life matters. Even though I don't have brothers, um, I do have half sisters. I've never met them. But even if I didn't have, you know, any, any sibling, I would treat you in every single case as if you were my brother, sister, aunt, uncle, elder. Mm-hmm. And, and on top of that, one of the things that we have been, I guess, implanted or, or engraved in our minds as generations go by is that with all the things in the history that has inflicted us, They've found every way possible, the colonial mentality, the colonial society, Mm -hmm. how they found every way to break up our family tree, to break up and have us turn against each other. And more than ever, we need each other more than ever. And I'm so glad to have you as a guest because you you've proven that. And I'm wanting to prove that time and time again, till it's ingrained, it's rewired in our minds, it's rewired our descendants into mm-hmm. our children that are currently here on earth, that that's not going to happen anymore. It's going to yeah. stop here. All these different types of intergenerational trauma and the colonial society mentality is going to end with us. Yes. And it's to have a strong family and community foundation and to have trust and support and love starts with them. Mm -hmm. And I'm so glad to hear that you've also got more involved as you got older, you became yourself uh, an attorney and a writer. So tell Mm -hmm. me that journey. I would love to hear that as well. Yeah. So I spent a lot of time going to attorney's offices when I was younger, um, just basically dealing with like that whole situation, civil liability and all of that. Like I spent a lot of time at court and in law offices. I hadn't really thought about being an attorney myself, but it was always kind of like in the back burner as something that I thought I could do or that it was kind of like destined for me to do. Kind of how I mentioned like reading was like my safe space during all that time. So it was writing. Always been an avid writer, always been a storyteller, always been someone who found comfort in the pages of books. Um, so those kind of career paths were natural for me. Um, when I went to undergrad, I had the privilege of interning with the Louisiana Legislative Black Caucus, and I saw nothing but like people who look like us, who are lawyers, who are state representatives, who are senators, who are doing all these great things. And it kind of snapped in my head like, hey, they 
are similarly situated and look like me, why can't I do this also? So that was kind of like the fuel behind that. Um, Obviously, the representation of lawyers that I was seeing as a child were not Black people outside of maybe on television show, and that's like two shows. Um, Representation was not necessarily there for us. So just being immersed and submerged into a, a place and a space where Black people were actually in the courtroom and not as the defendants um, motivated me. So I pursued that career in law. In the midst of being an attorney, I found that helping people sometimes creates places where your energy becomes kind of stagnant. So you have to have an outlet. You have to have like something for yourself that's going to be like your self-care or your peace or just your passion project. Um, And that's when writing kind of came back to the surface for me. I felt the need to to just give myself the opportunity to be vulnerable and like share the thoughts that had been on my mind. So I was able to put a collection of poetry out into the world. And after that, it kind of opened up so many doors for me because people were able to see that you can be an attorney or you can be a professional, but also have vulnerability, also have dealt with traumatic things in life, also have lost things, also have been in positions where you weren't just your best self. Um, So that writing for me, it just felt obvious that I had to do it just because I knew so many other people who were out there who may not have had the courage or the strength to kind of share their voices the same way that I was blessed to be able to. So those two things kind of were like my penance, my self-care, my duty. I felt obligated to help others. Um, Even with my career choice, I am a legal aid attorney. So all of my clients are unable to traditionally afford an attorney. Um, They're all cases for people who are living at or below the federal poverty guidelines. So I'm still in the trenches. I'm still trying to be a voice for people who look like me, people who may have grown up in worse conditions than I, um, but still recognizing that they need an advocate and someone to be a voice for them. So that's my whole jam. Like I'm, I'm very pro voice for the voiceless. Um, and I've just built like my own platform based off of that and, and really just doing the work, trying to facilitate healing and just trying to recognize that I'm not the only little girl who lost somebody. Um, I'm not the only little girl who had to see their parents crying and going through so many things. And there are other people like me who may not have been fortunate enough to have been blessed with the community at an early age like I was. So I want to be that beacon of that shining light to let people know that, hey, there are other people like you and and we got each other. Wow, it's an inspirational story. I, I'm like glowing with pride, even though I've only met you just this time, to hear your journey and how you've been successful um, in using something that was just so destructive and tumultuous in your life. And you created something so beautiful. <laughs> I commend you for continuing on that journey. I know it's a hard journey. A lot of the things in our lives, we don't anticipate on doing yeah. these particular things until it actually comes as a, as a calling or as a you one moment, you just, it becomes part of your, your drive, your passion. And I am just like, so happy to have you as a guest to express your story and how you came from a young girl to a wonderful, beautiful woman on a journey to continue on the work that needs to be duly needed that's duly needed so thank you that's awesome i wanted to know a little bit more about fallon and what she has done in these past years here is what she had to tell me 
creatively um, with my poetry and with my writing. I usually use Ephraim Hamilton, and that's just my, I guess, pseudonym or mm-hmm. way to wish my writing life from my attorney life. But um, some of the work that I've been doing is kind of highlighting the grief journey just in, for the Black experience. So I have some links on my website, which is Um, where you can read kind of a series that I started, which has also been picked up by the Mississippi Free Press newspaper. Um, and it's just basically grief in my Black experience. And it talks a little bit about the details of what happened and kind of gives a little background on that. So I can definitely send you that or lead you to it or email you to email it to you um, just for more background information on that. But yeah, I try to be as transparent as I can. Um, Instagram is usually where I put most information um, and that kind of highlights the work that I've been doing. Um, Even outside of just like attorney work, um, I have an organization that I founded with one of my friends called A Tribe Called Manifest. And it is basically in existence to build a bridge between Black and Brown women, um, just so that we can have a safe space to be vulnerable and to pour into each other. Um, And I feel like just growing up as a Black woman or growing up as a Latinx woman is such a similar but different journey and that we have so much that we don't know about each other. It's kind of the same. So that organization just exists to be that, that umbrella that to put us all under it together so that we can kind of be safe from the rain together but yeah I just think that what you're doing is so important and just so brave um because so many people especially women of color black latinas all like we're always put into spaces where they're either saying we're talking too much or they don't want to hear what we got to say so just to have this platform to be talking about people who otherwise would remain nameless in this world just based off of the color of their skin or like the situations surrounding their demise is so dope and I'm just happy to have been able to chat with you and I look forward to all the work that you're doing and anywhere that I can help I am always down definitely available um because I respect the platform and the see the importance of what you're doing so thank you so much Thank you. Well, it's it's been an honor. Like I said, thank you so much for that last thought that you had on me. I I, I try to accept all compliments, but I wasn't expecting you to say that. So thank you. When I got off the interview with Fallon, she wanted to make sure that I mentioned Andre's personality. He was a vibrant, charismatic, good-natured, loving person. He enjoyed listening to rap and reggae, and he valued so much in life, his independence, his work ethic, and his family. At the time of his death, he was excited about the birth of his first son. One of the memories Fallon recalls is seeing him in his bright orange shirt and overalls, preparing to go to a reggae concert. He had the most infectious laugh. One of the funny things that Fallon remembers is the nickname that he would give her, the nickname that he gave her. 
little homie, and always had time to take her to Girl Scout meetings. He had a lot of major things going on in his life at that time. He was about to move out on his own that summer after graduation. And one of the things Fallon had mentioned is that if he walked through the door this day, her ideal day with her brother would be watching basketball and telling jokes. I was informed by Fallon that there was a detective on the case, but he had passed away as well. I strongly believe that the law enforcement really dropped the ball on this case. Andre's family has waited 31 years too long. Who's to say if this is still sitting in a file in a storage somewhere? Bring his name to the front. Bring justice to Fallon and Andre's family. The wait is over. If you want to be part of the voice of Andre Parrott's family, please reach out to Houston, Texas Police Department Cold Case Unit at 713-308-3618. I will have the information to contact the Houston, Texas Police Department Cold Case Unit in the show notes. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Hands Off My Podcast. If you are enjoying the podcast and you'd like to support the mission, I do have a Patreon membership that will help the cause and bring more detail on cases and stories from the people of color community. If you yourself has a lost loved one or a story suggestion, please don't hesitate to contact me at email. Handsoffmypodcast at gmail.com and if you are only able to support in another way, please give this podcast a five-star rating on Apple or Spotify and continue to listen to upcoming episodes every Thursday, wherever you listen to your podcast. Dios te bendiga.